The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. All right, all right. This is the last session before supper, which is really exciting. So I've had a couple people say to me, multiple people, uh, more people than I would have liked have said to me, man, no pressure, but the first three sessions were awesome, which of course just puts pressure on you. But, but my, my thinking is the first three sessions were awesome. So if I flop, three out of four is really good. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, so this, I haven't started the breakout yet, so don't, don't start my counter. But uh, I wanted to read this because I really, and I don't know, uh, hopefully this all just comes together. But in my mind, man, all the, the, all the breakouts and all the sessions that we've been through, just seeing the way the Lord's weaving certain things together. I wanted to read this passage from First Timothy just coming out of what John just spoke so uh, clearly and passionately about. I was thinking about Paul's words to Timothy from 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm starting verse 11. Um, Paul says this, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of the scriptures, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and and your hearers. I think, man, just that harmony that he was talking about where, yeah, we've got to speak truth. Like, he puts so much emphasis here on, yeah, the teaching. Devote yourself, immerse yourself into teaching, into sound doctrine. Like, this is how God saves people is by the hearing of the word of God, and we're called to proclaim it. But what's never, what can never be disconnected from that is, man, that you live out that doctrine that you live out that sound doctrine, that they should be able to hear you preach and teach and then watch how you live and see how that truth is, is being fleshed out. I mean, that, that's beautiful. That, that's the picture. That's what we want to do. Like as ministers of the gospel, we want to teach sound doctrine. We want to proclaim Jesus in, with our words, with our teaching, in, in statements of truth, and then live it out. Man, and that, that, is, that is the power of the gospel on display. So, having said that, I'll start my breakout. All right, so the title of the breakout is The Gospel in Every Sermon. So in every sermon, preach the gospel. All right, now supper will start at 5 o'clock. So, not that easy. But, but sort of. So what's the point? What am I saying? Well, it's this. is that what Jesus taught us is that all of the Bible is disclosing who he is, is revealing to us who he is. It's, it's pointing to him in some way. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 24, 25 and 27, through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe 
all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, right? On the road to Emmaus with the disciples that don't recognize who he is yet after he's laid down his life and the resurrection. In John 5, 39 through 41, Jesus rebuking Pharisees, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the point is in, yeah, in all of the scriptures, in some way, no matter where you find yourself, Genesis to Revelation, like it is either pointing to Christ or it is built on who Christ is and what he has done. So, man, we always want to close that loop and bring it back to the centrality of the gospel. And this is called different things, right? Like Christ-centered preaching, gospel-centered preaching, uh, having a redemptive focus, all good ways of saying that, yeah, ultimately, we preach Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. Listen to this quote from a guy named Thomas Jones, not Tom Jones, Thomas Jones, most of you are too young to even know. I'm really even too young to know who Thomas Jones is other than I had a creepy mom. Okay, here we go. Thomas Jones. <laughs> True Christian preaching must center on the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the central doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. All other revealed truths either find their fulfillment in the cross or are, a necessar- or are necessarily founded upon it. Therefore, no doctrine of Scripture may faithfully be set before men unless it is displayed in its relationship to the cross. The one who is called to preach, therefore, must preach Christ because there is no other message from God. Okay? So this is awesome. And what he's saying is, man, yeah, this ultimately always has to come back to Jesus, who he is, and what he accomplished. So, let me say real quick what what we're not talking about, right? We're not talking about just a superficial reading of a passage of scripture and then jumping right to the gospel, right? Not just open up, read the passage in Genesis 1, and then springboard or take a helicopter to the New Testament, right, And, and pass everything else. That's not what we're saying. Like, What we're saying is, if what Jesus said is true, which it is, right, that it points in some way, Genesis 1 is pointing us to Jesus. And so when we're doing our hard work, the the hermeneutical skills that we're we're putting on display in our study, the the exegetical work that we're doing and sweating over, the, the hard work to show ourselves approved to be before God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, like in that hard work, we're not done until we see how does this passage reveal the gospel? How does this passage exalt Christ? Whether I'm in Genesis 1 or in somewhere in the middle or in Revelation, like it's all pointing to Jesus. So a guy named Brian Chapel and I'll Uh, recommend one of his books here in a minute he said this our goal is not to make every passage mention Christ 
but to show where every passage stands in relation to the grace ultimately revealed in Christ, okay? So, some, some things to watch out for is just, uh, and maybe some of your minds are already starting to spin with sermons you've heard where you're like, ah, I'm not sure that's really what that passage is talking about, where, you know, maybe somebody said some really good things, but it was on like, you know, Rahab letting the red cord out of her, out of her window so they would know that was the room that she was in, and then the rest of the sermon was just on the cord color being the same as the color of the blood of Jesus. And you're like, yeah, but is that really what we're, is that, is that how that passage is pointing to the gospel, or is there something deeper and more contextual in the passage that is pointing? Yeah, so like not just taking these superficial, or really, I guess the point would be, it's not our creative ability to see the gospel in a passage as much as it should be our faithful work to find the gospel in the passage. Does that make sense? Doesn't matter, I'm moving on. Okay, so here's how Paul talked about it. Colossians 1, 27 through 29. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you. All right, so pause. Now, mystery is not like mysterious, you know, smoke-filled room and like never find out what's going on. He's saying mystery, something that used to be like hidden and now revealed, right? The glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we proclaim. That's our job. That's our responsibility, we proclaim Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. One more, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is our ministry. This is what we're called to, to preach Christ, to proclaim Christ. And I think a lot of times, man, there is a temptation we can, what, what this focus will help guard against is things like, man, just going to an Old Testament passage and only teaching it in its Old Testament context. Well, what would be wrong with that? Well, if we stop short of showing how it points to the gospel, man, that a Pharisee, a, a, a good Jew, would feel comfortable listening to that sermon. Which, I don't know, there, there really aren't any good Jews anymore in the sense that you can't be a faithful Jew because there's no, there's no temple. They don't have the ark. There's no priesthood, right? So what does that even mean? Yeah, why, well, because that's over. Because all of that 
finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So when we preach an Old Testament passage, we can't just do the hard work of knowing the history of what was happening in Israel at that time, but how it ultimately leads to the gospel. And we're going to look in a minute at different ways that that happens throughout the Old Testament. But also when we come to the New Testament, and we come to so many passages that are giving us commands, right? There's all these imperatives of, of how we're to now live. And if we're not careful to see how those are built upon the gospel, either we'll just quickly dismiss it and be like, man, Jesus paid it all. He took care of that. His righteousness is imputed to us and then move on and not take those commands seriously for our life. Or we'll go to the other extreme and we'll just preach it and be legalistic. It'll just become a moral tale. And we just heap a weight on our people that they can't carry, that they can't, a burden that they can't get out from under. And so what the go- a gospel-focused preaching will do is then it'll appropriate all of that and bring it all into balance. So this quote from a, a guy whose name I can't pronounce, he said this, the unity of redemptive history implies the Christocentric nature of every historic text. Redemptive history is the history of Christ. He stands at its center, but no less at its beginning and end. So, what are some ways we can do this faithfully? To preach the word in a way that always proclaims Christ in a way that God intended. So what I wanna do is I'm gonna look at, let's see, how many do I have here? Let's go with six, six ways, six ways that the scriptures point to the gospel. Number one, promise and prophecy. Promise and prophecy. Um, and this, I've taken stuff from, so I mentioned uh, Brian Chapel, his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, awesome. Uh, I've took, taken some of this from Stephen M. Coleman's essay on Christ in the Old Testament, and I'll give you a bunch of um, uh, resources at the end. So it's kind of combining a lot of these thoughts together. So number one, promise and prophecy. These are passages that make specific mention of his coming, the Messiah's coming, his person, or his work, right? So you have Genesis 3.15, the promise that, the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, this may seem like, yeah, obviously, like we want to go from there to the gospel. It's the first really picture of the gospel that we have. What about when Moses talks about the prophet who will be like him? And this is where we want to slow down in our study and make sure, like, so mention this. For me, especially when I'm teaching the Old Testament, the first thing I want to do is, okay, I'm reading this passage, I'm meditating on this passage, praying through the passage, asking questions of it. I'm going to do the historical work, as much language as I can, my brain can handle, you know, cultural barriers that, that need to be worked through and all that good stuff. But I, I want to ask, okay, where, where is this either talked about or alluded to in the New Testament? That, that's, the, that's the slam dunk, right? That's where you know the footing is solid. Like, here's how the book of Hebrews talks about it. Here's how Paul talked about it. Here's how Jesus quoted this 
or made reference to this, and it helps put it in this context that we're talking about that fits into the, the whole story of the Bible. So it's the first thing I want to do, because, like, I don't know for how long, man, I, I read through, like, even when people would ask John the Baptist or people ask Jesus, like, are you the prophet? And you're like, oh, but there's a way to read that where it's like, are you the prophet? And not really connected to, okay, this is referring back to and Moses making a prophecy that God's going to send another prophet like me. Well, like in what way? Well, Moses, who was instrumental in giving the law, Moses, who led the Exodus, their freedom from bondage, that God was going to send a prophet like Moses. Well, then as you read through the gospel stories, there's not a moment where the gospel writers will say, and Jesus is like Moses in this way, but man, they allude to so much, especially in the Gospel of John, allude to so much from the Exodus that you begin to clearly see, oh, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. So that as you're walking through a book like the Exodus, and ever, these things from Moses, now it's not yet, yeah, just in this historical context, and let's learn some moral tales from what happened with with the Israelites and how Moses led them, but like, oh no, pause. He's a type of Christ right here. He's foreshadowing Jesus. And that, man, that goes above and beyond just some moral lessons. We see the gospel and then see how the people respond and, and yeah, like, look, look at their lives and learn, okay, where were they faithful and where did they fail? But ultimately, how do we see that, man, Moses, yeah, he led an exodus but one greater than Moses has come because Moses fell short. Moses himself didn't get to enter the promised land. And the exodus that Jesus leads is better because, yeah, they, those people did get to come into the promised land, but that was a physical land, and, and really their kids got to go in. They didn't, that generation didn't get to go in, and then they eventually got kicked out of it. And even right now as we stand, or I stand, and you sit in this room, I mean, that's, that's still a divided territory, right? There's still wars raging over that plot of land. The exodus that Jesus led is better. It's better. We've been freed from a greater oppressor. So, I gotta go faster on these examples. Um, the suffering servant, uh, the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34, to see when, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, like, Sometimes at best we'll connect that to Psalm 23, but man, if you read through Ezekiel 34 and you get to the Lord saying, man, I'm the good shepherd of Israel. I'll be their true shepherd. And then he, he lists out all the things he's gonna do for the sheep that have been abused. And he says, man, and, and, and David will rule over them. My son David will rule over them. Well, David had been dead for hundreds of years when Ezekiel said that. And it's this prophecy that, no, 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 a better shepherd is coming, and you learn, like, shepherd itself as a, as a construct for us to understand wasn't primarily about somebody who took care of sheep. Shepherd in of itself was a motif for kingship, and it's telling us what kind of king Jesus would be over us. So to slow down, and as we're working through passages of Scripture, man, not just get the immediate context and some application and then move on, but to pause and ask these questions. Okay, where, yeah, where is the gospel in this? What, 
what, what, what is, how does this tie into the bigger picture of redemptive history? So promise and prophecy, types and shadows, types and shadows for the person and work of Christ. We've got some obvious ones, right? Like the whole sacrificial system, the priest, the animals that were slain, the temple or the tabernacle itself, the Ark of the Covenant, all of this being a type or a shadow of Christ. The law, right? Jacob's ladder, Jacob's ladder. Jesus, right out of the shoot in John chapter one, man, he's talking to Nathaniel and he says, and you're gonna see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Man, time out and go, okay, where, what's Jesus referring to? And either from the Gospel of John to be able to go back to Jacob's ladder or from preaching through Genesis, like, all right, time out, again, and is this talked about in the New Testament? What does the New Testament have to say about Jacob? Define these words of Jesus and draw out this fuller meaning. David himself, we know as a, as a type of Christ, Melchizedek, Adam, Joseph, all these were ultimately given so that we would better understand the person and work of Jesus. Let me read this to you. These texts make no, this is from Brian Chappell's book, these texts make no specific mention of Jesus, but rather prepare the people of God to understand aspects of the person and work of Christ. We would not understand many aspects of Christ's New Testament ministry if the Old Testament had not prepared us with accounts of the activities of the prophets, priests, and kings. Exodus events, temple sacrifice, foreign adoptions, merciful pardons, right? These reflect Jesus. These foreshadow Jesus. They point to Jesus. And so again, I mean to, to back up and not get, I think we can zoom in, right? We can zoom in so tight that we, make, we, we can make a sermon all about Jacob, all about Moses, and the danger there is that we just draw moral lessons to learn do's and don'ts. And do's and don'ts are right. The Bible's full of do's and don'ts. Like, don't, don't throw off on that. Like, God has given us a lot of commands that we're to take seriously, but we're to see them in the context of the gospel, right? We're Christians. We shouldn't read the Old Testament as a good Jew, but as somebody who understands that Jesus has come and fulfilled these pictures and that then changes and appropriates the do's and don'ts for us. We realize, yeah, I'm called to that, but not in my own strength and power, but by the strength and power provided to me through my identity in Christ and who he is and what he's accomplished. Number three, motifs. Not just a fun word to say, a really cool thing to see in the scriptures. A motif is a repeated theme, image, or phrase. Sometimes I think the way in which redemptive truth is coming is explaining how the author uses a literary motif to prefigure or echo an aspect of Christ's redeeming work. All right, so examples here. These are some of my favorites. Um, Abraham offering his only son, uh, right? The picture of Abraham and Isaac going up the hill. We need to be careful. We don't want to draw like this is where we can get unbalanced is trying to find like too specific of a picture where you start saying things like, and man, yeah, Abraham's God, 
and Isaac's Jesus, and the, the, the barrel, the, you know, the bundle of wood is the cross, and, but at the same time, like, okay, don't miss the parallel. Yeah, Jesus is called Abraham to go sacrifice his only son, and what the New Testament tells us in Hebrews is that, yeah, and Abraham obeyed, and that was a demonstration of his faith, because he believed that God was going to fulfill his promise through his son, even if it meant he had to bring him back from the dead, right? So that becomes the main point of the passage, and then what we see is God's faithfulness because he provides, because the main point then is, yeah, Abraham's not God. Isaac is not Jesus. God has to provide a right substitute, and that is best seen in the ram caught in the thicket. So, man, to, to point to Jesus and not just say, not just leave it with, and so you just trust God. Just trust God. And then we, we water down what trusting God means to some sort of human ability or strength. And if I just believe enough, and if I prove to God that my faith is real, then he'll provide. Now, I mean, that, that's so backwards. Man, God's the one who provides. God's the one who provides. He, he gifts faith. Moses lifting up the serpent, serpent in the wilderness, uh, Numbers 21, John 3. This is my, man, this is great. And Jesus lays it up for us. And I, this is one of my favorite sermons to preach is uh, John chapter 3. And I, I, I preach it to Christian schools uh, that come to, to camp a lot because they always bring their senior class. And so uh, unless the kid failed, they wouldn't have been here the year before. Um, so I can preach the same sermon every time. I can preach my favorite sermon. And if they did fail, they're probably not the kind of kid to remember. And, uh, <laughs> but I love it because is there, a more, is there a more famous or familiar chapter than John chapter three? And, and right before John, in quoting Jesus, talking to Nicodemus and saying, Man, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right before that, he's telling Nicodemus, yeah, you gotta be born again. And Nicodemus is saying, how can this be? I don't get it. Right, Nicodemus isn't an idiot. Right? He knows that Jesus is painting a picture and he says, how can this be? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? He, he's not dumb. He, he just is saying to Jesus, I, I don't get the picture you're painting. And Jesus says, okay, you want to know how to be saved? You want to know how to be born again? He says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I, I'll just be honest, like, I don't know how many times I read that and missed it. Just missed it. Just blew past it. I don't know how many sermons I heard that never touched on that. And to go back to Numbers 21 and read that story of the bronze serpent and then get the main point of what's being said in Numbers 21, but not leave it with Israel in the wilderness. Oh, they just messed up again. They just screwed up again. No, 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 no. There's something bigger happening. He's showing them. Yeah. The poison that's running through their veins because the serpent bit them be, that's due to their disobedience that's a picture, clear picture of our sin. And, and God tells Moses, take, take this metal, fashion it to look just like the thing killing them. 
and raise that up, and if the people will look, just look, set their eyes on it, they'll be saved. And Jesus is saying, you wanna know how to be saved, Nicodemus? I'm gonna be that snake. I, I didn't mean to just preach this passage, but I told you it was my favorite. Jesus is saying, I'll become sin. I'll become your sin. I will take your curse. And if you'll just look to me, look to the cross, if you'll put your faith in me, it's nothing you can do, but if you, that poison from the venom of the snake was coursing through their vein and there was nothing those Israelites could do to get it out of them except take God at his word, believe the good news that he'd given them and look to his provision. Jesus saying, that's it, that's the gospel. Look to me, I'm God's provision. I'll take the curse, I'll take the punishment. Look to me and be healed. That's too good of a truth to miss, right? To fly by like, man, to pause on a story like that and go, okay, what's being said here? Again, just a simple question. Continue to ask the question as you do your sermon prep, as you prepare for Sunday school or your Bible study, okay, where's the gospel in this? Not how do I squeeze it in, but how is this pointing to Jesus? Motifs. The woman at the well, Oh man, I got another one for that. That's so good. Who, who all met their wife at a well? Not in the room, but I mean like in the Bible. It'd be funny if that was still a thing. <laughs> You're like, actually, <laughs> it was a hot day. Six flags, the little sprinkle machine. Who met their wives at a well? In the Old Testament. This is a youth pastor's retreat. <laughs> Isaac, Jacob, Unamas. That's Spanish for, there's one more. Huh? Not David. Well, maybe he met so many wives, huh? <laughs> what? what? Oh, maybe. I'm not sure. Moses, right? Remember Moses came and drove those jokers off? So you got three people. Is that, is that a pattern? Yeah. You know, I said Unamas, but I was wrong. There's one more person in the Bible that met their wife at a well. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. You saying he married the woman at the well? No, 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 no. Something bigger was happening. You have this pattern in the Old Testament of patriarchs meeting their wives at a well. And then you have John starting his gospel off with Jesus going to a wedding. Remember this? And he provides, he provides the wine, not the cheap stuff you bring out at the end, but the good stuff. Like he provides that and everything's getting set up. And then he goes and he intentionally goes to this well. And remember his disciples went to buy lunch in town. And when they come back, they go, what are you looking for? And it's not just because he's talking to a woman, but it's because he's talking to a woman at a well. And they're thrown off. They're like, man, what it, what's about to happen here? But Jesus was looking for a bride, which this woman represents. This wasn't my intention. I just can't help myself. Preachers make bad breakout teachers. Okay, anyway. 
She represents us. She represents the bride of Christ. She's broken. She's sinful. She's currently living in sin. She's an outcast. She represents us. And she go, remember she goes and she tells everyone, come, come see someone who told me everything I ever did. And that, and that story, Jesus did say, I am he. I, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. He lays it out. And then you see this picture of everyone from town coming to Jesus. Yeah, the bride of Christ. He came to a well to save his bride. Exodus, obviously. So, okay, moving on to number four. So what about other, because the, the, honestly, you know, probably for a lot of folks out this review and you're like, yeah, yeah, I knew that or I, I knew there was connection there. Maybe you hadn't preached those things yet, but, but you know that those connections are there. But what about like more obscure passages? I know, man, we're going through Genesis with our church right now and we came up on Genesis 31 and the way that uh, our pastors, we've, we've got six pastors for our church and uh, we rotate preaching and man, it's just awesome. And so I got chapter 31 I really wanted 37, but I got 31, and, uh, and I was like, okay, this is, Jacob is leaving Laban, and he's going to take his wives and, and get out of there, and so I'm reading the story, and I'm like, okay, you know, he's, God's told him to go, so he's demonstrating faith, and, and, you know, Rachel steals the idol and sits on it and lies about it, and like, okay, so I can talk about idol worship, and my, my instinct is I start going into moral tales, lessons to learn and I'm I zoomed so tightly in on the human characters and I'd forgotten to do this and so what I did it, I found myself doing is I was I, I wasn't I just wasn't it wasn't connected I didn't have my sermon I had I'd done the historical context and looked at all the different reasons why Laban believed that the kids that all of uh, Jacob's wives had, you know, really his kids and all these cultural things that I could share with the church and maybe they'd be like, hmm, interesting, that's, you really did your homework and, but that's not the point of a sermon, you know, and, and so I, I was like, okay, I got to back up. I got to back up to some of those foundational things like what, what Zach was pointing out in his breakout and so I backed up uh, and, I, and I asked, gosh, okay, who, start, start from scratch, who's the original audience? Okay, you're reading Genesis, who's the original audience? What generation? The, the Exodus generation, right? That's the original audience. And then all of a sudden, like, man, I started to see from the context, yeah, this pattern. You got Jacob living under oppression, taken advantage of, he's got his family, and he's gonna leave there to go to the promised land. And there's an issue with idols. And I thought, oh, <laughs> Moses is, God is using Moses to tell this story because this is such a picture of what's happening in the Exodus generation. They're living this out. They've just left oppression. They're being called out of oppression to go to the promised land, but they have an issue with idols. But for me, it doesn't stop there because I, you know, that's not my generation. Those aren't my people, right? The church is my people. And so then that falls into context. Oh, well, Jesus led the greater exodus. This is a pattern, this is a motif. And to see it rise from the passage, so to be able to teach that passage in its context and then launch into the gospel. That safeguarded me from it just becoming 
a sermon about idols. I did, I mean, we, we preached on idols in context of, okay, as a believer, then how do, we, how do we fight that? How do we put that to death? So for me, the, the practice was, again, there's times you gotta zoom in when you're doing your sermon prep. You gotta zoom in, but then always, man, zoom back out. Zoom back out and look at whatever pa- your passage that you're teaching on, preaching through, how does that fit into the overall story of the gospel? All right, the next one, uh, direct or resultant, direct or resultant, and this is more clearly in the New Testament, right? Expounding the text, direct mention of Christ or his messianic work, gospel accounts, some messianic, messianic psalms, epistles, their development, right? Christ has done something and we are responding. So the, the true gospel, the true gospel proclaimed that obedience itself is a blessing that results from God's love for us. Many passages that describe the privileges or blessings of obedience cannot be rightly interpreted without explanation that makes them an ultimate result of what Christ has done in us rather than a direct result of what we do. All right. He, he, and so here's the point. We'll come back to this. We mentioned this earlier. As I was reading that, I realized I didn't type that very well. I apologize. So let me try it again. <laughs> we come back to this point. Yeah, that we can read the epistles and the, the imperatives, right? The, the commands and the directions that were given. And if we just isolate those, I mean, we can come away pretty good legalists. Or we could be Mormon, right? Like, I guess, I don't, I don't really know. But, but you see what I'm saying? Like, we gotta remember, okay, even for this, yeah, I mean, there's so much, so much that uh, will overlap. And I'll, I'll say this, I mean, I know, like, the, the, guy, the guys that are responsible for the show, The, the Chosen, which is really popular, and I'm not throwing off. I, I, have, I watched a couple episodes. For me personally, I, I just decided, you know, I, I was ex- having to explain more to my kids from watching it than, like, the prep I was doing for our Bible studies. It was like, that was, just wasn't for us, but I'm not, I don't know. I know a lot of people love it and appreciate it, but I've watched the guys who produced it, and, and, and they make a big deal out of how their, their friends in the Mormon church love it and how, man, we believe in the same Jesus, and I think, man, well, how, how, how can you get there? How, how can you make a statement like that? And it's like, well, if you just take these teachings and isolate them apart from the clear picture of the gospel that they're flowing out of, then yeah, then you can say something like that. And so, man, we, now, what Zach was alluding to earlier is, yeah, if your doctrine, if your theology is good, you won't end up there, but let's make sure that our practice of studying and preaching the word of God wouldn't leave somebody that we teach vulnerable to end up there. Does that make sense? So, I mean, if we can always show them that, yeah, here's what the scripture says, and here are these, these characteristics that should be alive in the life of the believer, but here's how we get there. It's because of our new nature and new identity in Christ because of what he's already accomplished. Because he accomplished it, we now have the power to live it out, right? Ephesians chapter two, 
8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I'm going to close. I'm, I'm, I so wanted to do better with time than the other guys, but we all went over 30 minutes. So I want to close with this quote. It's from Charles Spurgeon. Just in case you didn't believe me, now you have to, because it's Spurgeon. And then I'll, so I'll, I'll make this quote, and then there'll be some resources that will go up on the screen behind me, and I'll pray. We'll be done. He said this. Don't you know, young men? It's, this is from his lectures to his students. So don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, where it may be, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. So from every text of scripture, there is a road to Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now, what is the road to Christ? I've never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if ever I do find one, I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get to my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a Savior in it. Awesome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, love you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its, the, its depth and its beauty and its simplicity. And thank you that it's unified in your life and your work and your ministry. I pray that we would be faithful to always proclaim you, to proclaim you to our students, to our churches, to the lost, to our families. And God, I, I pray that you'd just give us an awesome rest of the night as we go back in just a little while over to the other building to worship you. I pray that you would free us to worship you in spirit and truth because you are worthy of it. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.